0: doing the sabbath now in the context of the gospel of John which i have said is the most uh, the most important sabbath text in the in the bible it certainly is a, is the mo- is very extensive in the way it features the sabbath and the discussion about the sabbath in chapters 5 and chapters 9 in the gospel of John and i'm calling this the sabbath and the revealer because in the gospel of john jesus is the revealer and that is so so uh, so heavily accentuated that that it would be interesting for us to try to think about the sabbath as it comes to us through through the ministry or through the agency of the revealer now taking us back to where we left off last time <clears throat> the Gospel of John t- claims to be eyewitness testimony, right? We 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 saw that last time, <clears throat> because toward the end of the Gospel of John there is a claim about authorship, unlike anything you find in the other gospels, there is a claim about our source, <clears throat> that the person who the the so-called beloved disciple, he is the disciple who is testifying to these things and who has written them. <clears throat> which could also be translated and who has caused them to be written who is the reason for for having them written it need not mean that he was the actual author and there is he that doesn't mean that he might not have written written some of this material but it doesn't lock it down it doesn't doesn't take it to to him uh, only necessarily And then we have this response inside the text of the Gospel of John. We know that his testimony is true. So we have at least, we have certainly more than one voice in the Gospel of John. We have the voice of the the primary source. We have the voice of the beloved disciple who claims to have been an eyewitness to some of the most important things in the life of Jesus. And then we have a response inside the Gospel of John the we talking back to this testimony of the beloved disciple has to be someone other than the beloved disciple that that's quite quite clear isn't it or is that is that controversial we know that his testimony is true that's some people receiving that testimony and and signing off on it certifying it as it were isn't that what we're seeing here and then we saw that there was a, in, the, in what may have been, may have, or could be read as the ending of the Gospel of John in chapter 20. The Gospel of John has 21 chapters, and in some ways uh, it looked like it, it could have ended in, in chapter 30, 20, 31. These are written. Many more things could have been written. Jesus did many more things, and they could have been written. But these are written so that you may either continue to believe or come to believe depending on which uh, which version of pistuata or pistusata you will you will choose there did you you see that so we have either a gospel that speaks to those who do not believe yet that you may come to believe or we have a gospel that speaks to people who believe already that they may continue to believe and we said that that these uh, two options are attested in in uh, in our uh, what the 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 greek manuscripts available to us give us either option so is there any way to harmonize this or do we need to harmonize it or is it fine this way or any comments on that maybe it's both <laughs> yeah maybe it's both well it could you know that one one option one option that that there is some plausibility. There has been lots of theories of the Gospel of John that there was a first edition and a second edition. The most influential of those uh, theories said that says that the first edition, first edition, that was chapters one to eleven. That used to be the first edition, and the, and some people used to call this the Gospel of Signs gospel of signs where jesus does all kinds of things he is more doing things and then then uh, it is expanded into a second edition or maybe these two these two uh, books actually existed simultaneously and then were merged Uh, from 12 to 21 you have the gospel of glory now that used to be a very influential view of, of of dividing up the gospel of john i am not extremely persuaded by that view because it is so the gospel is so well integrated that it seems quite difficult to see that these books existed independent of each other and that that this is you know the second edition this was first edition and then suddenly here is the second edition i think there is a there, you could make a case for a first edition that included chapters 1 through 20, that the gospel could have existed as a first edition, that, that you know, 1 to 20. And then the second edition, you added one chapter. Chapter 21 was added, and that would be, then, then that would be the gospel as we have it today. These are purely hypothetical uh, suggestions, but I think the people who... Scholars who, who see it that way have, I think, a stronger argument than scholars who see it this way, because uh, so you would end then in chapter twenty, and maybe maybe if I were to buy into that model, I would say that initially this gospel may have addressed a community, an internal community to some extent, people already believing, and that the text at that point it ended saying these. Were written so that you may continue to believe, but then, in the extended expanded edition, it opens itself up more. These were written, so I had to add an s there. Pistusita, this these things were written so that you may come to believe. You know, there are there are, you could you could make that case, case because uh, there is a sort of sense of ending here, and uh, and then. This chapter comes after, and this could have happened. I mean, do you have, do you have analogies in, 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 in real life that there is a first edition and a second edition and a third edition? I mean, we have a very influential author in Adventism who writes, <coughs> initially Initially, she writes a book called uh, <coughs> Spiritual Gifts that is basically doing the cosmic conflict story in its <coughs> in its sort of rudimentary version. Then she writes Spirit of Prophecy, much more expa- expanded version of, of the same story, but it, it, oh, just about all the ingredients are there. And then you have a very big, very ambitious project, The Conflict of the Ages, five books. But those five books are in many ways just expansions of that original small little thing written in the 1860s. Uh, spiritual gifts, so the notion that there could have been a first edition and a, and a second edition is not a notion that one should reject and sort of say that 's t- oh no that, that ruins the inspiration of scripture that that doesn 't do it for me. you know there is really no no reason in principle why you would have to take that kind of position. You could say because it is intriguing why would he why would he do that? It changes it quite a bit. These were written that you may continue to believe. Or that could, I could see the beloved disciple while still alive writing something like that to his beloved audiences, to his churches where he has influenced. And then we could see somebody putting an S in there in in a later edition to when this gospel goes, goes global, saying, These were written so that you may come to believe. And 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 you could see you could make sense of those two options along a temporal axis for the gospel. Now, th- there is a point to all of this. This is, sounds like a big detour, but there is a point to this that I hope will become clear. Uh, but <laughs> it isn't clear yet, I'm sure. But <laughs> King James and it says that uh, you may. It just has a you may. Yeah, King what, King James. Well, because they hedge. You know, the, translate, the translators are hedging there. They are saying that these, these things were written that you may believe. But, but the, the, the verb, the two verb forms in Greek are more specific than that, you see. So they have given us a, a kind of broad, open-ended translation for something that ought to have been translated if you were going to, to go strictly by the, by the Greek. It ought to have been translated either that you may come to believe or that you may continue to believe because with may believe you could go either way and still yes, I think you, you could know, you may believe and if you didn't believe you may you can't believe but yes. you already believe it it kind of gives yes. you that reinforcement you, that, that you goes with you could but but uh, but that's you know that that would work but it, uh, but uh, uh, like, let's say the NRSV the NRSV has made a choice. They have gone with the text that has the s and say that you may come to believe. And some translators make the decision that is the text we are translating. That you may come to believe. That is the text we are translating that you may that you may continue to believe. See, so you could you could, you know, serve serve both sides I suppose some other way. I like to the internal evidence of the gospel in some ways supports the ambiguity that there are t- there are things there are explanatory no- notes within the gospel that seems to be to be there to facilitate you know uh, uh, appropriation to f- facilitate understanding for those who do not. Know yet know the story. They do not have the background. They are not insiders. So I think I think there is certainly evidence inside the gospel for the for the idea that that we are t- we are going to help those who do not know. There were six stone jars. They were there for Jewish purification. You know. Who is that? Why do you have to explain that? They were there for Jewish purification. Well, you explain that to somebody who doesn't know those those kinds of things. So, you're sort of, you know, helping the uninitiated reader, those who do not believe yet as it were. Wouldn't that wouldn't that work as an example for for for, you know, to accommodate. But I think the ambiguity is actually could be quite helpful. <laughs> although although, you know, the trans- translators some translators try to uh, accommodate the ambiguity some pe- some translators say well we're choosing that greek text that's what we're translating <coughs> anyway so is it for insiders or outsiders <coughs> well well it has served outsiders very well you know the reception history of the gospel of john has accommodated the needs of outsiders very well and i talked to a pastor last night who said in his work with people who are who are uh, what you might call unchurched or or whatever you you call them uh, he has always used the gospel of john because it has served his work with with the outsiders very well i think that that uh, that is the experience of of many it deals with problems it tells the jesus story in a way that is friendly to people who do not who are not in the know. But you could say maybe similar things about the other Gospels. They have also served outsiders well. The Gospel of Luke probably aims to do that more explicitly even than the Gospel of John. Richard Bauckham, who uh, was my supervisor at the University of St. Andrews, and some of you uh, got to hear him when he was here in February last year. How many of you heard Bauckham when he was here? Quite a few of you did, and some of you have read uh, some of his work on the book of Revelation and also his book, The Bible and Ecology. You may not have seen this book, (coughs) where he has, I think, two chapters uh, in uh, a book that was uh, published in 1998, The Gospels for All Christians, uh, where Bauckham and other scholars, they take on this uh, idea that the Gospels were written inside of specific communities and in some ways primarily for the benefit of those communities that has been a a very uh, dominant uh, theory in in uh, gospel criticism you might say for the past uh, (coughs) maybe almost a hundred years now 70 80 years at least somebody launched this idea that there was a johannine community that there was a community of mark certainly a community of matthew you didn't argue it very much and, and make the case very much but suddenly everyone believes that there are these communities and that the gospels are written to serve you know to sort of reinforce to help those those communities and that that the gospels then take on the character of that community more than the character of the story of Jesus, the primary story. In some ways, Jesus becomes, you know, he, ha- he, he competes for attention with the community within which that gospel originated. So there are books written on the community of Matthew, and there are books written on the community of John, several books written on the Johannine community by, by leading scholars. Well, Bauckham and some of his, his friends... Uh, challenge have challenged that idea and said that the Gospels are not written for these communities uh, they are written for all Christians they are written with an open ended readership in mind they are in some ways written to whom it may concern you know that kind of open endedness and and he makes some arguments in in one of his chapters here that uh, that well, you know you don't really need to write if you are there inside the community, then you can talk to them. And, you know you can do Sabbath school or you can do Bible studies, you can do winter Wednesdays, you know stuff like that, and you, do your, you, you influence your community through talking. When you write, you might assume that there is some distance between the person who writes, and the audience you seek to reach. You know, that kind of thing. The letters of Paul would work for that. Paul writes letters. Why does he write letters? Well, why do you need to write? Period. Well, because you are in Ephesus and, they, and you want to talk to those people in Corinth. So you write. And you could have a similar idea about the Gospels. And then the idea that these communities were sectarian groups... You know, living here, you know, in splendid isolation from everybody else. Here is Matthew with his community. Here is John with his community. That is not the picture you get of early Christianity. What is the picture you have of early Christianity, say, from a book of, like, like Acts? My, those guys are frequent flyers, you know, they have, they have, they are aren't they you no know, he's on the move all the time he travels he travels he travels he's all over the place you know do you have this idea that these communities are sequestered in some ways uh, withdrawn from the world like like maybe the qumran community which in some ways was a community that was sequestered that doesn't seem to be the picture of early christianity even if it were true that there could be a community of matthew which has been located to Antioch. Maybe he was in Antioch. Or a community of John that some people think may have been in Ephesus. Some people think this Johannine community was somewhere in Palestine. But even if that were true, that there were places where this person had more influence, that person had more influence, they communicate with each other. There is communication, there is travel, they are linked. You are part of a movement. There is an early Christian movement, even when they are just house churches. See that, that picture? So the notion that, that you have sequestered communities that are sort of, you know, like monastic or, you know, in some ways withdrawn, that doesn't seem to be the case. It's also clear from these earliest documents that, these are, uh, that this is a movement committed to, to outreach, any any questions on this? Is this new to you? Had 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 have this uh, sort of passed you by? This idea of community of Matthew, community of John. Well, you live in a very healthy environment, don't you, in Loma Linda, where <coughs> where we may in some ways have succeeded in being a sequestered community, and all and all these all these uh, uh, challenges to traditional ways of reading the Bible. They. Simply didn't touch us. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's good or... I don't know. <laughs> well, the linchpin in some ways. In some ways, the linchpin of the argument that the Sabbath conflicts in the Gospel of John uh, relate to... Let me draw that up here... Uh, at the Sabbath, so here we have the Jesus, the time of Jesus, and we have the beloved disciple being part of, of the Jesus story originally, and then we have believers in Jesus. We have the believers, and we have the beloved disciple being part of the group that believes in Jesus after the lifetime of Jesus, and then we have the Gospel of John. And there is a role for the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John that he is claimed to be the source of this Gospel. So you you, dis, you do not disagree with with this way of representing the, the evidence. So So the linchpin of the argument that the Gospel of John is in some ways telling us what happened in the community of the early believers of Jesus, I told you last time, had to do... With the expulsion from the synagogue, aposynagogos, that there was, there, this term occurs three times in the Gospel of John. We did that last time. If some of you didn't get that, you can email me and I will send it to you. Uh, so the notion of expulsion from the synagogue, that this was something that had already been formalized. And you could not think that that had happened in within the lifetime of Jesus. It must have happened afterwards. And Lou, uh, Lou Martin, who who has advocated that, he won many, many, many followers to that kind of view, that <coughs> that this <coughs> expulsion from the synagogue happened could not have happened in the lifetime of Jesus. It must have happened afterwards. Now that view has been critiqued by many people now and i think it is, is is loosing there are still some people who who argue that that you need to have that that view that it happened here but there is m- much less traction for that argument now here is daniel boyarin so daniel boyarin has a, is a jewish scholar who has written a wonderful a wonderful book about paul and galatians paul as a radical jew and and he has he listens very keenly to what goes on among Christians, how Christians read the New New Testament. And he listens because, because he, he, in many ways, thinks that Christians tend to misread these texts and not appreciate their Jewish, their actual Jewish, Jewish context. So <coughs> the, <coughs> the blessing or the curse, the curse on the heretics, the Birkat Haminim. You see that term, birkat ha-minim, birkat ha-minim, the minim, they are the heretics. The curse on the heretics, that's a formalized, sort of procedural thing that was directed at, or, uh, to, to, Jewish, to to Jews who, who may have frequented the synagogue to basically rein them in so they will not listen to whatever heresy there might be. But here is what, this, this is, might be overkill, but here is what Daniel Boyarin says about that idea, which is the linchpin again of the argument of Lou Martin here. He says that Berkat Hamanim, Hamanim is not mentioned in, in the Mishnah at all. Mishnah is, a, is the Jewish commentaries, Jewish rabbinic material after 70 A.D., it is not mentioned in the, in the Mishnah at all. Our very first attestation of, the, of this institution in a rhetorical form, indicating that it is a novum, in fact, is to be found in the Tosefta, generally regarded as having been edited sometime around the middle of the 3rd century. So you have a very weak source for that claim that this is something that happened you know, there early on. The rabbinic... Account of the introduction of the Birkat Haminim is thus not only a punctiliar summary of a lengthy process. What he's saying is, it took a long time before this was implemented. You see, that's what he's saying. It took a long time for it to be implemented, such a long time that that it, it doesn't even fit within the time for it to be part of the Gospel of John, the horizon of the Gospel of John. Yes it is something that happens here in the in the communities here after the time of Jesus but it has not it doesn't really have persuasive power for whatever for what happens in the gospel of John I have confused you now I can see it but confusion is a very good thing for learning <laughs> The only things I know well the are the things that confused me at some point. <laughs> well, let's add it up here. So, <clears throat> here we have the representation. That, that, uh, uh, that And what is it that I wish to say? Well, all of these things are in the Gospel of John. There is the story of something that happened within the lifetime of Jesus. There is some influence of something that happens you know, here in the community or whatever community there was that responded to the message of Jesus. Is there or isn't there in the Gospel of John? We know that his testimony is true. That is something that believers say. That is not something that belongs within the lifetime of Jesus. So there is some influence of that. And there are <coughs> sort of uh, narrations, sort of comments by the narrator throughout the gospel of john so so there is some of that in the gospel of john and then we have the gospel of john the beloved disciple he is he is all over the place here but what is it that should have priority is it what happens here or is it what happened here what should have priority is what happened here that is important I don't think you can exaggerate that too. one can stress that too much that once everything when the dust has settled on this kinds of con- on this kind of controversy, when the dust has settled settled, you have a gospel on behalf of which you could claim priority more than you know to, to sort of say, "Well, this is high quality, this is a high quality representation of the life of Jesus, because, like no other gospel, it claims to be it credibly claims to be the work of an eyewitness. The work of an eyewitness. I was there. I was there. I saw it. Well, where was he? Where was he? Next to Jesus at the Last Supper. Next to the cross at the crucifixion. The only man, the only male there. All the others are women. You know, and there, and he is also there running to the tomb, he is also there there uh, uh, you know at the farewell scene, you know five times he is mentioned in the gospel of John. This is our source, so yes, comment yes wait we'll get you on we have a microphone here so the others can hear you i didn't expect that, but to me it's the bottom line of that verse that he was so in tune with what he was the message that he was giving, that he said, even we who believe may have life in his name. And to me that is just such a convincing statement. Yeah, but that's that's good. And he he is a he is a believer himself, obviously. So there is that dynamic in the Gospel of John of eyewitness and witness. Somebody sees and somebody believes, you know. But belief is not obvious. Belief is not you know, not everybody who sees believes in the Gospel of John. So, but he is an eyewitness who sees, and he is also a witness who <laughs> believes. That kind of dynamic. So, here is a, a construct then on <coughs> within the lifetime of the of Jesus, the beloved disciple is a young man. He is the faster runner when they go to the tomb. He's a young man. He's the reason why he runs faster is because he's younger. That's my theory. You can have your own. You know. Then. Inside the Gospel of John, inside this story, there is a conversation between Jesus and Peter about, and that, about the beloved disciple. Jesus says about the beloved disciple at the end of the story that Peter asks, what about him? Because Jesus says to Peter, when you were young, you went to Las Vegas, you did all kinds of things but when you get older, somebody else will bind up around you and lead you where you do not want to go. You know, somebody, you know, that's the image of Peter, that he, that he will, in some ways, there's a sort of cruciform shape to Peter's story. And then Peter asks, what about him? Turning about the beloved disciple. And Jesus says, if I want to, him to live till I come, what is that to you? Follow, you follow me. The word went forth in the community, among the believers in the community, that's the word that NRSV uses, but it says Adelphos, Adelphos, the brothers and sisters, the word went forth that that disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He said, if I, if I want him to live till I come, that's none of your business. You follow me. So why, does, why is that? Why does the narrator of this gospel have to say, Jesus did not say that he would be alive that what 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 did they think they thought that Jesus would come back within the lifetime of the beloved disciple but now they have to say what it won't happen because time has passed and the beloved disciple is now an old man he might in fact be dead by the by the by the time we see what you read in chapter twenty-one, verse twenty-four, the last part of verse twenty-four, uh, you know that we believe that his testimony is true. By that time, maybe he isn't even around anymore. You see the picture? Yes, uh, Brad. I just uh, the similarities also in First John about the eyewitness account. You know, just how it opens: what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, we looked at with our hands, and touched. You know. It's, it was very strong. That's, that, that is quite characteristic uh, here. So, so here then, he's is, he is a young man here in the primary story. But by the time the Gospel of John gets written, he is not an old man. He's dead, probably. Or s- certainly, it is obvious that he will die. And that, that rumor that Jesus would come back within the lifetime of the beloved disciple, that rumor was, not, was based on false premise. I think this is quite fascinating. But it should not weaken the notion that the Gospel of John is eyewitness testimony. See, that claim is made, made and, and there is a lot of verisimilitude with lifelikeness in the Gospel of John to make that claim. I think uh, we've said more than we should have on that, on that, but you should be aware of that, because <clears throat> the Sabbath conflicts in the Gospel of John by many people will be seen to be, you know, maybe there was a Sabbath conflict within the lifetime of Jesus, Maybe there was, but many readers, many critical readers of the Gospel will say, "No, there wasn't that much going on there what the big the big thing happened here as the early believers in Jesus ran into conflicts with Jewish communities, and the early believers in Jesus may not have been sabbatarians. You see the whole thing falls apart unless we we find a way to anchor, anchor it in the, in the primary story of, of Jesus. <coughs> a couple of things in, uh, on uh, uh, John here, and links to Genesis. What, what do we read here in Genesis? We read that Genesis says in the beginning, and the Gospel of John says, and why does he say that? Now that is pretty pretentious. Do you think it is intentional? It is quite intentional, so intentional. what is it then what do, So he wants to link the subject of his story with the subject of whom? the creator in Genesis. you know that's what he's doing. Nobody else is doing that. sort of beginning on that on striking that note. in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, the logos. Did what? All things are created by him, and without him nothing is created of all the things that have been created. So, so the God in Genesis is the creator of all things, and the Logos in the prologue of the Gospel of John is also the creator of all things. And then there is the story of how God creates human beings. And in John, a sad note that there is alienation between the creator and the beings created in his image because he came to his own, and his own did not recognize him, as it were. So, <clears throat> then there is also a link to what you might call, what I'm calling here cosmic dualism. That is that is a bit of a contentious subject in, in contemporary scholarship, but here John writes in a text that has been, that is, Many people don't like it because they think Jesus speaks like an anti-Semite here. But listen to what he says. Jesus is saying in John 8, Chapter 8 in the Gospel of John is the angriest chapter. The discussion is very heated. The controversy is very fierce. The Gospel of John has a very ironic surface, but it has a very contentious reality. People are very angry in this Gospel. Even if the language seems to belie that at some point, but here Jesus says, when he lies, he speaks according to his own nature. Well, let's have somebody read it from your own Bible, because I, I have, I have uh, uh, it's not completely complete here. It's not complete. So let's have somebody read it from your Bible, John eight forty four. This is a pretty bad text when you th- read this text in a post Holocaust context you can see why some people have found that text to be quite, quite difficult and, and needing to be, to be uh, commented on. So what do you have in, in any, anyone, anyone there? And, and Brad has the microphone. So, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Which which uh, version are you reading from? New King James. It says what when he speaks a lie? When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. Okay. Well, that's not too bad. When he lies, most of your Bible says when he lies, doesn't it? When he lies. But the Greek says when he speaks the lie. It's, it it definitizes the the pseudos when he speaks to pseudos he is uh, uh, he speaks of his own he speaks true to himself because he's a liar and a father of lies so what is what does jesus have in mind here what is he referring to what is, what what is featured to us here in the gospel of John? It's not a problem a problem in a in a sort of you know, this is a text. With, where did he get this from? He's speaking of, of Satan. The comment here is a comment on Satan. You are of your father, the devil, but it is not you that is the problem. It is the father, it is the devil, the source of the, all the problems here that, is, that Jesus wants to highlight. So, so what's, what's the background? What comes to mind here? <coughs> Just like the prologue in the Gospel of John, they were back in Genesis. We're back, you know, John anchors his story in the beginning of the biblical narrative. And he, has feature, he features the beginning of the biblical narrative uh, at other times. When he speaks the lie, he speaks according to his own nature. Because he's a liar. You know, what is, what, what is it then we, we hear there? What is the story? Genesis 3. Of course it's Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? When I do this with students here, I ask, the, I ask we have to nail it down, you know, and I'll, we'll have to do it again here. Uh, so what is the lie? If Jesus thinks that, this, that the serpent in Genesis said something about God that wasn't true, that is, and he is he is using the definitive form he said he spoke top pseudos he spoke the lie so what what is the lie then in this in this uh, uh in this way, what is it? We've done this text before, <coughs> but you know. <laughs> I heard somebody say this, say it. What did you say? He said you will not die. So that, uh, is that the lie? Is that a lie? It is a lie. I mean, uh, that uh, assuming then that, that God spoke the truth and the serpent was lying. So certainly it could be that. Uh, you know that. Is there more? Is there anything else that that you might want to have before we make our final choice? Uh, yes. Let's see, Chris Job. We could look at this one whole lie that he's implying that God is not on us for this. So he's sort of painting a picture. And this is just a part of it. So God is not truthful. Yeah, and He's not a God of freedom. He's what God said here. So the serpent did so the serpent lied even before he said you shall not die. There is there is a kind of falsehood, isn't there? So what is the content of that falsehood? Not eat of any tree. That's where it begins, isn't it? So so that's that's a lie and okay what does that mean you said not freedom and he is doing it in a diplomatic way you know he didn't go directly accusing God as a liar but he said did God tell you that you know I don't think it is okay let's hear one more comment I think it's interesting when you talk about misrepresentation because if you read In chapter uh, 39, or I mean verse 39 of chapter 8, um, Jesus says, You're determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And you could see the seed of misrepresentation that was planted in the garden is now blossomed full by the time you get there, but they didn't recognize him. And the reason they didn't recognize him was because of God's misrepresentation, because of the misrepresentation of God. And so you're seeing that lie now in full bloom. That they did not know who Jesus was. Okay. Any, any other thoughts here? For the content of the misrepresentation. So what, what does the serpent represent God as? Unreasonable. Unreasonable. Unreasonable? Unreasonable. Yes. Okay. Well, if you can't get right down to it, he says um, God is not on your side. God is set against you. He restricts you. Um, he does not want you to succeed because then you will, will be like him. There, there are, all of these boil down to that God is against us. You agree with that? Is that. Are you. And, and, and it looks like that. He's made. Now, what did God say? Well, God means to come across as a God who is for us. You can freely eat of any tree in the garden. You know, and and even we have done that on that text before, so we cannot do uh, do it in more detail. Even though it's always tempting to make sure we get 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 to the point here. God is not a giving person. God is withholding good. You know, that's the kind of gist of the misrepresentation. And I heard, well, I listened to something Graham Maxwell said about this text some many years ago. He said that. That the serpent speaks in very pious tones, he's a very pious person, he is more pious than God, you know he dresses it up in, in piety, and he dresses it up also in anonymity. there is a you know he, he says, "Has God really said that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? He is representing it anonymously, even though he is the source of that innuendo. He represents it as though it is something objective. It doesn't have, you know, you don't know who said it first. Actually the serpent is saying, I wish to prove it in true. He is pious in in so many ways here, you know, that that he wants to clear God of the falsehood that has that he has originated. You know. But of course he doesn't really want to clear God. He wants to to make it stick. There's a wonderful book, several books about this topic. I haven't gotten to read them yet, but I'm, I'm about to at some point. Reputation in the Age of Internet. Because in the age of Internet, you can destroy people's reputation, uh, reputations anonymously. Uh, Martha Nussbaum, who is one of the leading thinkers in, in the U.S., a, law, a lawyer and a theologian teaching at the University of Chicago. I wish we could get her to come here. To to talk to us, she has written a wonderful chapter about that. How you can, how you can in the age of internet very effectively uh, destroy people's reputation because you do not need to. You 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 know you don't get to meet your accuser. One of the rights, habeas corpus rights in a civil society is that you have the right to meet your accuser face to face. You know, but that's not the case here so you have that i think we've done well enough there so the lie then the lie this is there are, there is a host of lies here it's lies through and through but if we were to say what the lie is it would be here in the first sort of the first opening statement has god really said you cannot eat of any tree in the garden no that way of, of representing god and jesus has come then to make To fix that problem, let's skip these verses just to see (coughs) that the two texts in the Bible, this is why I wanted to feature this here, there is the Sabbath in Genesis and the Sabbath in Genesis has a universalistic. You know, there is universalism in Genesis. You see what that? There is less universalism in Exodus, you might say. Or some people could say that Exodus doesn't have a universalistic aspiration, even though it actually does. But we we could make some concessions there. We will make no concession on Genesis. Genesis and universalism go hand in hand. Creation story, it's everybody. And the book of Isaiah is also universalism. So those two texts in the Old Testament, they are appropriated, they weigh in on the Gospel of John. The two texts in the Old Testament that influences the Gospel of John the most are Genesis and Isaiah. Very much so. I wish we could do this in more detail, but let me just throw it out there as a claim. So then, to this problem, to this problem that God has been, been misrepresented and that somebody spoke something that could be called the mother of lies, the lie. Uh, uh, There is then Jesus coming into the world as as the revealer, as the revealer. Because you cannot fix this problem. You know, how do you fix misrepresentation? How do you correct misrepresentation? by representation don't you by revelation you cannot do it some other way there is no shortcut to it well if there were a shortcut you could do do it do it some other way but jesus does it then as the revealer and he comes to to sort of set right what has gone wrong here and so and there is no I, Maybe the only book that self-consciously knows what it is up to as much as the Gospel of John would be the book of Revelation that again sees the picture, this problem in Genesis, and goes for the jugular to correct the problem of misrepresentation that you have here. So we have Jesus then represented here in, in the prologue and in, in the book as the revealer. So <clears throat> summarizing a few things here and then move into our story we would have a few minutes on the first of the sabbath miracles there is a movement in johannine studies from thinking that the gospel of john is more influenced by gnostic and hellenistic sources to appreciating its jewish character the the jewish the the indebtedness of john to a Jewish framework of thought is now much more widely held and is is really the prevailing idea. There is also a shift from seeing the Gospel of John operating mostly here, late, ahistorical, to seeing that the Gospel of John is firmly anchored in the primary story of Jesus, that it is... (laughs) a reliable source, a reliable witness to Jesus. And then there is also an incre- a trend that, is a, a, where that makes the notion of a Johannine community more doubtful, even though I don't think we should just delete it, because there is internal evidence of the Gospel of John for a receiving, receiving community of, so, of some sort. So <clears throat> the Sabbath in John of merely seven miracles called Simeon, signs in John, two are performed on the Sabbath, and uh, generating extensive discussion, John 5 and John 9. And after the first Sabbath healing, and that is for the first time in John, there is a, pl- there is a determination to kill Jesus, meaning what? That the Sabbath is central to the plot of the Gospel of John. The sort of plot line, the problem in the Gospel of John in some ways will center on what Jesus did on the Sabbath. Now let's read from the audience here and we will make a few comments here and and then we will go into, into, we will retreat uh, into a posture of contemplation between this today and next Sabbath when we will return to see if we can if we can take an inventory of the meaning of the Sabbath in the Gospel of John. So, let's read the first three verses. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool, called in Hebrew, Bethsatha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Okay. Any comments on this text? I think James continues and says, "Waiting for the moving of the water." Yeah, the waiting for the moving of the water is found in later manuscripts and is not found in all the all the ancient manuscripts. So the attestation for that reading has weakened, and NRSV will not have it. But, but that's, there is a sort of ex, an explanation that might not have been there in the earliest text. Some other things that are obvious here. Isn't it interesting? Now in Jerusalem there was a gate. Now in Jerusalem there was sheep gate. Specifics, a named gate. Called in Hebrew. And there was at that, by the sheep gate, there was a pool A named pool called Beth-Sata. and there were porticos, five porticos. You know, here we have three, in some ways, redundant specifics. You know, apparently redundant specifics. But the person, you see, eyewitnesses do not do redundancy. They do what they know. You see, so the notion of eyewitness testimony is quite. It's substantiated in some ways here by by what by these specifics. Because, you know, if you were doing this secondhand, you could say there was a gate, and you and I would be happy with that. That's fine with us. But it isn't good enough for him because it was the sheep gate. That's quite irrelevant to me, actually. But it isn't irrelevant to him. And there was a pool, and that would have done fine for me. But it was a pool that has a name for him. And when you name things... You could easily run into trouble if you give it the wrong name. So this person better be confident that he knows what he's talking about, and he is very confident. If he had said there were porticos, several porticos, it would have been sufficient. But he has to say five porticos. Now, was there five porticos? Were there five porticos? That seems to be the case. Charlesworth, J.H. Charlesworth, that we mentioned last time, has done archaeology here around the Pool of Bethesda, Beth- and they have found it to be very much the way it is represented in the Gospel of John, and he is quite strident now about, you know, defending the Gospel of John as, as eyewitness testimony. Okay, let's read on. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Okay, comment on that. I have a few comments here. Is this illness acute or chronic? This is a medical.